0: Good morning. I would like to add my endorsement to what Ben said regarding Liz's faithfulness. Uh, it's so very fitting our text for this morning from second Corinthians, I mean second Thessalonians chapter three, as we talk about the necessity of work, because I can think of few others. Who embody the command that Paul gives better than Liz. She's one of the most diligent and hardworking and well-ordered people that I know. Every, every she has it's just when I think about Liz, she she, you know, she'll plan her meals for the week and lay them all out. And I just love her carefulness in every facet of her life. And I think anyone who spent any amount of time with her notices those things and is blessed by them. I am, and I lift her up to you as an example to imitate, like Ben said. And like we're going to see, perhaps you'll notice the ways that she's uh, embodied and fulfilled the things that Paul is charging the Thessalonians to do in this text. So let's turn to that now. I'll try not to keep mentioning you, Liz, so that you're not crying the whole time. (laughs) 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, I'll read the text, we'll pray, and then begin. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 6, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, So that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we confess that this word is good. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and we delight ourselves in it. We wish to be like those whom you commanded, Lord Jesus, that we would be those who hear the Word of God and do it. We want to hear the Word of God this morning, and we pray that you would come by your Spirit and that you would illuminate our hearts, open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law, out of your Word. We pray for encouragement where it's needed, for conviction where it's needed. And that you would speak to us and conform us to the image of Christ. Grant us repentance and faith to walk in obedience and in a manner worthy of you. And we thank you for the examples that we have in your word, the examples that we have in our lives of people who do this well and who work well. And thank you that you haven't put us here to be idle, but to work and to glorify you in our work. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we get into the text, I want to give a brief theology of work. And what better place to start, as Corey would say, than in Genesis? <laughs> So we're going to look and we'll, we'll just do a brief, very brief survey of work in the Old Testament. We're going to look at Genesis, the, pro, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then briefly in Jeremiah. So we see in Genesis that the first act of God in the Bible was work. In the beginning, God created, created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. And then in the beginning of chapter 2, it says... Three times God worked. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. It's the first command that he gave to man. God set the example, and then he gave the command to man and said, the dominion mandate, Genesis 1:26 26 26-27, have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his image, and the image of God, he created him, male and female created them, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, f- multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the first thing God did is the first command that he gave to man. And the first thing that he said when he put man in the garden, his purpose there was, Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden for what? To work it and to keep it. Now, this is before the fall. Before, f- the work is not a consequence of the fall. Work was given before the fall. And it's good. God did it. And then he commanded of man. And then in comes the fall. That's not to say that the fall doesn't have any effect on work. But work is not a consequence of the fall. So he pronounces, the Lord God pronounces the curse on the woman. Pain and childbearing. The home. Rearing children. That's her primary area of oversight. So she'll have pain in that. And then to the man, he says that because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat of, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, And to dust you shall return. So, because of the fall, work became troublesome and toilsome as a consequence of sin. It existed before the fall, but it was without the same strain and struggle. The ground was not fighting back, the creation was not pushing back against Adam as he was working it. But after the fall, that was the case. And so it continues to this day as you well know and we see so we see work created in genesis work commended to us in the proverbs i'm just going to run through a handful of them proverbs 12:11 whoever works his land will have plenty of bread but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense proverbs 16:3 commit your work to the lord and your plans will be established 1626, a worker's appetite works for him, his mouth urges him on. <coughs> Sometimes we think that we have to have these really spiritual reasons for doing things, but other times there's just plain natural motivations that God gives. You have to eat, and so it urges you on to work. Whoever is slack in his work, Proverbs 18:19, is a brother to him who destroys. Twenty two twenty nine. do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. I use this as a motivator all the time for my children. I say, when they do stuff in slackness, and they just kind of half do something. I said, if you are skillful in your work, you'll stand before kings. If not, you stand before obscure men. It's a motivation that, that God gives. A man reaps what he sows. Twenty-eight, nineteen. whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. And then in Proverbs 31, it talks about the woman who fears the Lord. And it says of her that she seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. So work is created in Genesis, work is commended in the Proverbs, and work is celebrated in Ecclesiastes. This is five times, it says some variation of this verse, which is the theme, one of the themes of the book. The first time is in chapter 2, verse 24. It says this, there's nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. This is the repeated emphasis of the book, enjoying the toil with which you toil under the sun. It's all vanity. Everything is vanity and passing away like a breath. But when you work to the glory of God and he blesses the work, then you can enjoy it. It's an enjoyable thing, and it's good for us to do so. And then the, the last time that this is mentioned in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. At the end of that chapter, it uses two different words. There's a contrast between what God does and what man does. This is very interesting. There's two different words. The one that's used of what man does repeatedly throughout Ecclesiastes is toil. Toil, toil, toil. And that word is amal. It means trouble, misery, that which is unpleasant, hard, distressing. But somehow we, we can find enjoyment in it. It says. But then when it talks about what God does, it calls it work. So it calls man, what man does toil in Ecclesiastes, and what God does work. That word is ma'ase, and it means labor, deed, occupation. The focused expenditure of energy in order to accomplish a goal or task. I just find that fascinating that the, the, uh, the author intentionally uses two different words to describe. Because what man does is is toil and it's vanity and it's hard and it's passing away and what God does is eternal and it lasts forever and he has it's not hard for him to do it. The nothing fights back against him when he's doing his work. So work is created in Genesis it's <clears throat> I forgot my alliteration. <laughs> it's commended in Proverbs It is celebrated in Ecclesiastes, and it's commissioned in Jeremiah, or we might say recommissioned, because this is really a recapitulation of the dominion mandate. It's a familiar passage in Jeremiah 29, 4-7, when God's people are in exile in Babylon. The Lord says to them, "...to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce." Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you'll find your welfare. So there's an expectation of God that his people would fulfill the dominion mandate even in the less than ideal conditions of exile in Babylon. He exiles them and they're, they're punished, they're being disciplined for their sin, but he doesn't lift the expectation of you must work. That's why I put you here on the earth. I've, I don't know if you've always thought about it or if you've ever thought about it this way, but I tend, before I really thought about this, I tended to think of God's people when they were in exile as just kind of there. Like they were just kind of there and they were not happy and they couldn't do all of their normal things. They didn't have the temple. They couldn't worship. And they were just kind of just there hanging out like waiting to be delivered. But they were working there. They were building things. They were, they were pouring out their lives even though that wasn't their home. And so it is to be. Man was created for work. It's in the very fabric of like Aaron prayed, of the created order. It's ingrained in us in such a way that we cannot and will not experience fulfillment and satisfaction apart from doing it. This is one of the most difficult lessons. Maybe it was just for me, or maybe it's for every young child, and especially young men, that just want to play. And that's really what the world commends to young people, to children. Well, they should you know, they should have a childhood. And by that, they mean that they should just be able to do whatever they want and go and play all the time. But it teaches them and trains them for failure later in life because once you get, if you just play, 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 and you have to do school, but you play, play. Well, then you hit the real world, and you have to work, and all of a sudden they learn the very hard way that life is not all about play. And that play is not fulfilling. Certainly not in the same sense that work is, but it it appears that way on the surface because of the consequence of the fall and the difficulty of work that God has placed upon it, so it feels like that it's not good. We don't want to do it. There's a resistance to it, but it is fulfilling, and and it can be enjoyed. Just think about this. How the world talks about work. There's such an objection and resistance to work by non-Christians. And a lot of Christians, too. But the prevailing thinking of the day, it's just, I hear it constantly. The people that I work with and a lot of people that I know talk about it this way. Oh, if you ask somebody how they're doing on a Monday, they say, well, it's Monday. Well, it's another Monday. See, when I hear that, I think it's the beginning of another week. It's time to tackle it. And that should be the attitude of God's people towards work, not grumbling and complaining like the world does, but a readiness to go and conquer. Or people say, oh, thank God it's Friday, it's Friday. If you ask people on Friday, how are you doing? Oh, it's Friday. Like, yeah, so? See you again on Monday. It's almost the weekend, people live for leisure, they live for vacationing, saving up and toiling and toiling just to get to the next vacation, and there's a general grumbling and complaining attitude about work. What this is, is an avoidance of the curse. It's a both, it's an avoidance of the creation mandate, but it's an avoidance of The consequence of the fall that God put on man at the curse. They're trying to avoid it. They're trying to avoid that hardship and that difficulty. See, the world works to be able to rest. But we rest to be able to work. That's why there are six days of work, one day of rest. So we work from rest. We come... We take a day and refresh ourselves. It's the same thing when we sleep at night. We replenish, refresh our bodies, wake up the next day ready to work. But the world's just, I just got to get this out of the way so I can get to the weekend. Or I got to get this out of the way so I can get to my next vacation or whatever else. But it shouldn't be so with us. I know that you've tasted and, and experienced this. There is, there's so much fulfillment in a job well done. God has baked it into the created order. You cannot be satisfied and fulfilled by leisure alone, by a lifetime of leisure. Look, people go and they work, whatever, 30 or 40 years, and then they think, oh, I'm going I'm to work and I'm going to save all this money and in the last 20 years of my life. I'm just going to have leisure, just leisure. It's so boring. They would never say that. But it's empty, and it's vanity, and it's soul-sucking because you don't have any purpose. You're just going around filling yourself with pleasure, but it's not the real and lasting kind of pleasure that God intends for you to have through work and through building and through following his pattern that he set forth. And so there are three related commands. If we go back now to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, There are three commands that Paul gives here. They're all related. There's a command to all. There's a command to the faithful. And then there's a command to the idle. First, we'll look at the the command to all. But before we look at that in 2 Thessalonians, we we can go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 because that's the first place that this is mentioned. It's the original exhortation to work. 1 Thessalonians 4, 10 through 11 says, we urge you brothers to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So he says, aspire to live quietly, that means not just that you don't talk or that you don't have any kind of conflict or confrontation with anyone. It means stay out of other people's business. Be quiet as far as it concerns the business of other people. Mind your own affairs. Work with your hands. And then it gives, a, gives two reasons for that. First, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. We must be an example And they were, it was intended for the Thessalonians to be an example, especially in their culture. In that culture where there was a lot of laziness and slackness and not wanting to work, an example of the value of hard work. We are a living example to the world of the value of hard work. We are a living example to people of how to work hard. We are a living example to people of how to work well And this might be the most important one and the most difficult. We are to be an example to people of how to work gladly. How to work gladly without grumbling, without complaining, enjoying, like it says in Ecclesiastes, enjoying the toil with which we toil under the sun for this is the gift of God, it says. The world should see us as Christians as a supreme example of what it looks like to work hard and to find enjoyment in doing it. honoring and well-pleasing to the Lord and it bears witness to him so that's the first the first reason that you may walk properly before outsiders and then the second reason that you may be dependent on no one that you might be self-sufficient not weighed down with debt not reliant on other people but earn your own living and not be a burden to others It's an interesting instruction given in a context where there was such a sense of corporateness and togetherness. And they were to be together and to to give generously to one another, to help one another. But be dependent on no one as far as it concerns your work. Earn your own living. Now evidently they didn't heed, or many of them, or at least some of them, did not heed the original exhortation because it's given here again in the second letter. So he gives it in the first letter, feels compelled, and it seems to him necessary to give the same command again and to emphasize and extrapolate on it in the second letter here. And this is the, the, the maxim, the command that he gives. If anyone is not willing to work... Let him not eat. It's referring to people who refuse to work. I'm, I'm not going to work. And the, the language that he says in verse 10, when it says we would give you this command, it means, the sense of it is, we used to command you this. As in, this was a routine command that was given to them when Paul was with them. So some didn't listen to the exhortation in 1 Thessalonians and apparently they didn't listen to Paul's continual teaching when he was present with them as well because this wasn't anything new. But it was a point of difficulty. Some commentators think that this was uh, possibly a Jewish proverb. This, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. And that it was based on Genesis 3.19 that we read God's, pronounce, God's pronouncement of the curse on man by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground so again if they're not willing to do that you're you're bucking against the curse and the way that God has ordered creation one commentary says that this was a constant theme of Paul's teaching for three possible reasons one Listen to how familiar these are. There's nothing new under the sun. These three reasons, and they continue to this day. There was a supposed nearness of the second advent of Christ, as is talked about continually earlier in the letter, that convinced idlers that it was useless to work for a living. Well, Jesus is just going to come and take us anyway, so why do I, I don't need to work. There was a Greek dislike. That's number one. Number two, there's a Greek dislike of manual labor. So there was the thought that well, well, Christians are free in Christ. Why should we work like slaves? It's an equivocation of what it means to be free. Well, I'm free in Christ from sin, so I must be free. <laughs> I must be free from work too. And then the third reason is there were so-called spiritually minded among them that felt that mundane daily labor was beneath them, and other church members should keep should keep them while they concentrated on promoting the spiritual life. This is just Gnosticism. While work's not spiritual, we're going to focus on these spiritual things over here so you work so that I can eat and I can focus on the real spiritual things. But Paul gives them an example in himself. It says, the tradition they received from him. He talks about that. The tradition that... Those who are walking in idleness or not in accord with the tradition they received from them. And you yourselves know, verse 7, how you ought to imitate us. You ought to imitate us. So apparently he left them an example of hard work the entire time he was with them. It says he was not idle when he was with them. He did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. He worked day and night with toil and labor, was not a burden to any of them. He had the right, it says. He had the right. He could have eaten other people's bread because of the ministry that he was doing, of workers worthy of his wages, but, in, but he, he forewent that in order to set an example for them of what they ought to do. This maxim would be really great and should be something that constrains civil governance. I think there's a very strong case to be made for the elimination of all government welfare programs, but I'm not going to argue that here. The point is that if there are going to be government welfare programs, they should at least be constrained by this maxim. If any man's not willing to work, let him not eat. We're not giving free handouts to people who willfully refuse to work. The government really has this backwards now. The government taxes people who work, and who are willing to work in order to and taxes heavily I might add do you live in brattleboro and they give it to people who refuse to work so it's taking god's word and flipping it upside down so that the maxim should constrain civil governance but it should also constrain us in the church we need to take care not to abuse the charity of others and we need to take care not to allow such abuse by others in the body if there are people who are not willing to work we should not permit them to be constantly taking from others who do work and we shouldn't be giving to such people to perpetuate that cycle but not only so there's something more and this gets to our second command, the command to the faithful. So there's the command to all, and now there's the, this command to the faithful, to those who were not being idle, to those who were working. There's a command given to them. The con, here's the context of this command. It's, he leads out the passage with this. Before he gives the command, I know I already talk, I talked about it in a different order, but that's because he gives the command to all in 1 Thessalonians. But before he gets to that in this text, which is in verse 10, he gives this command in verse 6. And it's before, it's before that and it's before the command to those who are idle. It's the first time that Paul has given an explicit command in either letter. The first command that he gives to God's faithful in the Thessalonian church is this. We'll get to it in a second. One commentator says that Paul's opening is authoritative. There's a military ring about the word he uses. And the word connotes a general giving orders to subordinates. When it says in verse 6, Now we command you, brothers. And he emphasizes the solemnity of it, by adding the phrase, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is, it's, it's the highest level to which he can elevate a command given. We command you, and we command you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, people say that today, you hear people say, in God's name, and they say it, sometimes people will say it as a swear. But That's because they're mocking the way that it's intended to be used, which is to add so much weight to something by invoking the name of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul does here. He's adding weight to it. So what's the command? It's this, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Keep away. Keep away. The New American Standard says withdraw yourselves Avoid literally means to avoid association with, to shun. Shun people who are idle and insist on being so. This is a form of church discipline. And notice that it's not a command that's given to the elders. He's he's giving this command to all in the body. That's an important distinction to make because discipline is most effective when administered by all the faithful, acting together with one heart and one mind, rather than just from the overseers, just the pastors. No, we all agree on this one thing. Why was this command necessary? Maybe you think it seems harsh. It's necessary to honor Christ, that his name shouldn't be blasphemed among outsiders, Like it said in 1 Corinthians, we we work hard to be an example to outsiders, and the idlers are working hard to present a bad example to outsiders by not working hard. It's necessary for the purity of the church that she live up to her high calling. It's necessary for the health of the members that other people be not tempted to fall into the same error, because you will be tempted And it's for the correction of the offender, so that they might feel the sting of discipline and be brought to repentance. He reiterates this command in the verses following what I read in verses 13 through 15, which we'll hear more about next week. But he bookends what he's saying with this single command said twice at the end in verse 13 through 15. It says, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So we are to take, they were, they were to take note of the person, mark him out as someone who was willfully sinning. I think really that you can take this, you can zoom out and take the principle from this, that it's not just idlers, but it's anyone who is continuing in willful sin and refusing God's command. Because he says, if anyone doesn't obey what we say in this letter, not just this one thing, but anything that we say, anything that's a command of God, mark that person, take note of them, and have nothing to do with them. It means to ostracize them to withhold fellowship and community from them. It says in Proverbs twenty nineteen. listen to this wisdom, whoever goes about slandering or reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a simple babbler. We'll get to that in a second. Idlers were guilty of babbling and meddling and gossiping. 1 Corinthians 5.11 says, But now I'm writing to you that you not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. To what end? What's the purpose of this? It's not just, it's not at all to be vindictive, to be self-righteous, to point the finger in judgmentalism it is it says here maybe this is hard for you to receive but it says that he may be ashamed we sort of balk at that but the purpose of exercising corporate discipline on somebody who is persisting in willful sin is that they would become ashamed of their sin That they would become ashamed of their transgression of God's law and that it would bring them to repentance. That's how we love these people. And that's why he says in the next verse, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So we're not treating this person like an enemy. We're treating this person like a brother by having nothing to do with them so that they might be ashamed and be brought to repentance. It's done in brotherly love, but we think too many times that we're wiser than God when we try to be nice to people because various reasons. I don't know. It's uncomfortable to do that to people. It's uncomfortable. That confrontation, that conflict is uncomfortable, so we'd rather just be nice and cordial with people, but we esteem ourselves when we do that wiser than God. Well, I don't want to be harsh, I don't want to be firm with this person, so I'm going to reject this commandment of the Lord, and I'm just going to be nice. It doesn't work. It's not good for the person in the long run. We ought not to interact cordially and favorably toward those walking in willful sin, and all the much more if such a person's been put out of the church. So that's the command to the faithful. There's the command to all. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. The command to the faithful that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness. And then there's his command to the idol. This is the only admonishment or correction given to the church at Thessalonica. That's pretty great. This was an exemplary church. But they did have those among them who were guilty of this one thing. It's, it's intimated in the first letter, chapter 5, verse 14. It says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. Admonish the idol. And then it's elucidated more further here in this letter, in verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies that seems like a contradiction, but they they are busy. They're just not busy working. They're not busy minding their own business and doing what they should be doing. The word there for idleness that's used repeatedly in this passage, three times in the passage, ataktos, it means somebody who's disorderly, undisciplined, lazy, refusing to work. It means not in battle order, that you're not at your post. Military connotations. The failure of a soldier to keep one's rank. The Hebrew word for idol, that's used in the Old Testament, refers to a bow that doesn't have a string or isn't equipped with an arrow for action. So you might say it's, a thing or a person that isn't fulfilling their God-given purpose. Bow doesn't have a string, you can't shoot it. Same with not having an arrow, so, so it is with someone who's idle and refusing to work. They're not fulfilling their God-given purpose. So there's a two-fold command that's given to such persons. It says in verse 12, we command, and it's not only a command, it's an encouragement. It's a command coupled with an exhortation. We command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ that they should do their work quietly and earn their own living, or it literally means eat their own bread. Don't be a busybody. A busybody is somebody who's a gossip and a meddler. These were, were the people who were among them idleness leads to preoccupation with matters that are either outright sinful they're unfruitful or they're just none of your business think about the loudest and most outspoken activists in the world the people who have time to go to all the rallies they go they get on Facebook and they get on all the social media and they're just you know commenting nonstop. You, you talk to these people, if you see them face to face, they just want to bicker about this stuff. They do this because they're, they're idle. They're not occupied with the things with which they should be occupied that pertain to their own life, and they usually their own life is in shambles, in my experience, when I meet people like that. Matthew Henry says, Most commonly those persons who have no business of their own to do or who neglect it busy themselves in other men's matters. If we are idle, the devil and a corrupt heart will soon find us something to do. And listen to this. The mind of man is a busy thing. If it be not employed in doing good, it will be doing evil. So there's no just zen where you empty yourself. You know, like meditation and the Buddhist kind of meditation where you just empty your mind it doesn't work that way there's no just I'm not going to do anything you're going to be busy with something it's just a matter of what you're going to be busy with idleness is a burden to other people in the body because idlers end up meddling in affairs that don't pertain to them they're they're quarrelsome because they're not occupied with something their attention's not occupied and their heart's not satisfied So they're just quarreling and bickering. And it puts an undue reliance on other members. You know, constantly asking for something. The idler follows worldly thinking. Like I said before, attempting to escape the creational mandate to work. So... As we conclude, let's not be idlers, let's not be idlers, but labor joyfully unto the Lord. I said I wasn't going to keep talking about Liz, but I'm thinking about Liz because she's she is the opposite of an idler. So, be like Liz in this way, a hard worker. And, and this applies, I mean, Paul's talking primarily here about vocation and providing for your family. But the principle is applicable. Whatever, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Whether you are looking over and ordering your household or whatever it is that you're doing, that you're occupying your time with, that you're, the, the way in which you're working, Do it with all your might. If you're in school, if you're doing school, all the children in the room, do it with all your might. Do it. That's your work that the Lord's given to you in this season. We have some encouragement here and you know, I'm actually really encouraged as I was thinking about everybody in the body and how I think there are a lot of examples, besides just Liz, of people here who work well with their hands, who work hard, who give themselves to their work, who work joyfully, who work heartily as unto the Lord. And I'm really thankful for that. It's encouraging. <clears throat> and to encourage you further, we have a threefold hope that moves us to work and to work well. It's, we have an immediate hope, we have a generational hope, and we have an eternal hope. The immediate hope is that a man reaps what he sows. You work hard, you develop skills, you grow an experience, and you generate wealth. Stand before kings. And you use that wealth to advance the kingdom of God also you get the immediate satisfaction of the work of your hands it's like God's example what what did he say when he finished everything the end of Genesis 1 God saw everything he had made and behold it was very good he was pleased with the work that he did and we should do the kind of work I don't care what kind of work you're doing it's not about the work Itself necessarily. It can be about that. You can get joy and satisfaction from the type of work that you're doing, but you can also get joy and satisfaction just from the fact that you're doing work, period, and that you're doing it well, and that you're glorifying the Lord while you're doing it. So that's the immediate hope, and then there's a generational hope. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And you leave not just the monetary, the monetary gain, but you leave an example of faithfulness and joyful work to your children and children's children. Children see you working, see you doing it joyfully, see you doing it hard, see you doing it well, see you doing it unto the Lord. They pick that up. They do the same thing. And, and, and to the thousand generations, Lord willing. And then there's the, the eternal hope, which is the greatest of all these. Romans 2.6 says, He will render to each one according to his works. Ravenhill used to say, Salvation's free, but rewards aren't free. Which is true. You get salvation is the free gift of God, justified by faith. But you can store up rewards for yourself, or you can squander and have come as though through fire, barely make it. And have no rewards. There is a sense in which God repays a man according to his work here and now with natural consequences and eternally. Jesus said in Revelation 22: Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Each one to what he's done in the body. So let's be. Be willing to labor and work and be willing and to grow in exercising this command that Paul gives to those who are being willing to work and who are being faithful in our treatment of those who are idle, those who are refusing to work, and those who are persisting in willful sin. We must be willing to obey his prescription for that, to keep away from such people, have nothing to do with them for our own sake for the sake of the body for the sake of the name of Christ and for the sake of that person that they might be brought to repentance let's pray together father we we give you thanks that you've given us hands with which to work that you Haven't left us here to be idle, to be bored, and to be filled with emptiness. But you've given us work to do. You've given us spiritual work to do, and you've given us practical work to do. And we want to be those who honor you in doing it. Let us not be idlers, busybodies, but let us work hard with our hands honor you in our work and build generationally as we seek to build your kingdom (laughs) and strengthen us and help us to have the right attitude and the right disposition and exercise the right actions and words towards those who refuse to work, towards those who refuse to obey anything that you've said We want to follow you and to be like you. And we want to wrestle with your word until it changes us. So I pray that you would wrestle, that each heart would wrestle with the things that we've heard from your word as is necessary and be changed. And that we would become more and more like the church at Thessalonica. Praiseworthy and thankworthy and great examples of what it looks like to follow Christ so that we can honor your name, build your kingdom, so that we can be an example to outsiders. And they look in and see that every aspect of our life, even our work and our labor, things that they hate to do, they see that it's not so with us. In Jesus' name, amen.